Welcome to Gonzo Times Radio. I am your host, Punk Johnny Cash, and I have a guest with me today. Now, you probably won't hear much from my guest because there's the significant symbol of language, with my, which my guest seems to be lacking in. But uh, my guest and I have engaged in the conversation of gestures. If you go back and listen to the Mead episodes at the beginning of this, you'll understand what I'm talking about. My guest is an escapist. He and I interact in a social manner. He attempts to escape the house often. I am his oppressor. I am his tyrant. I am Homo Faber. And we'll talk about that when we start to talk about alienation, materialism. I am Homo Faber. I think it's Faber, might be Faber. My guest is Homo or my guest is Feline. His name is Rumble. As I've said, he's an escapist and I oppress him. I oppress him in an interesting manner, though, with, with kindness and love. Uh, he, uh, he understands that as much as he wants out, that I will allow him to go out of my lap for a time if he sits in my lap and I pet him. He enjoys it. Sometimes he wants to escape, but realizes that that escaping only ends up with me placing him inside of the house. Now, there's no reason the feline rumble here. That's my that's my guest. <laughs> there's no reason he, I, I will let him escape. He's on my lap. <laughs> he did not want to be anymore. Usually he likes to be on my lap petted. He's, he's very into me despite my oppression of him he he gets rewarded i reward him you know his behavior and we interact through the conversations of gestures now i'm going to start there because you know we didn't always have this extensive language an extensive knowledge that we currently have we're gonna we're gonna jump from mead in the early 1900s back to about 400 years before christ and we're gonna talk about something today that's a bit off the subject, but on the subject, we're going to take a, a medium perspective somewhat, and I'm going to do some infusing myself. We're also going to look at the writing of Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a philosopher in the, close to the time of me, the beginning of the 1900s. I say the 1900s. It was literally a different century than I live in now, which blows my mind. <laughs> I get, I'm getting old. But it's there. Nope. Bertrand Russell wrote this book that I've been looking at, reading, called The History of Western Philosophy, where he kind of goes over philosophy. Now, why am I looking at philosophy? I initially said that we're going to start to look at these things from the perspective of a social behaviorist, right? Philosophy gives us a lot of things. We have different lenses we view the world through, and these lenses are largely ideologies, right? Philosophy gives birth to these ideologies, these ways that we understand the world. Almost think of it as like the software, you know, like an operating system. You get the good old uh, Windows, Linux, Mac, how that operating system works, right? It's essentially the ideology in, in, in the mind of a human being, how they interact, how they perceive things, how they respond. You've got the software, you've got the programming there uh, in ideologies. Now, some of these ideologies and these, these 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 programs do wonderful things. We turn we create great tools, great programs, right? Logic, mathematics, science, religion, politics. All of these kind of rise out of the philosophies. Now, philosophy itself being the kind of it means literally translated to as I understand love of love of love of knowledge. When I was a teenager in high school, I had I wrote on my 
on my books often. And I was, I loved Byron. I, I dabbled in some philosophy when I read some, I didn't really get it. Nozick for a minute it was one of the first things I branched into that was outside of the, what I was supposed to be reading essentially. Robert Nozick, if you know anything about Robert Nozick, he's far more right wing than I am. But, you know, philosophy, the love of knowledge. And when I was in high school, I would write in my notebooks. And I remember I wrote, I discovered that philosophy meant love of knowledge. I was going to be a deep thinker. I read my Bible a lot. <laughs> and on my notebook, I wrote, Philosophia. And I wrote, my love of Sophia. And I drew a little woman picture of a woman's face because, you know, I've always drawn. I've always been an artist. And there was something... Something there, I thought it was really, really deep, really deep, you know, writing my poetry and my loving Sophia notebook. So what is this philosophy? Wow. There's a lot of different answers to that, and I'm not going to give you a definitive one today, but I'm going to kind of take and try to give it a context. Um, philosophy is the vehicle, the method, essentially, which, which we have come to knowledge, right? Almost all of our knowledge has come from philosophy somewhere along the lines. Uh, you can trace it all through there. Now, it's interesting to note that these philosophies begin outside of the written word that we have. They come from somewhere else. Uh, almost in a rhizomal manner. The ones that survive us, the ways we understand, the ways we teach, were the ones that were written down in the written word. Now, we're looking at Greek. Socrates and Aristotle are the people we're going to look at to begin with in Bertrand Russell's writing, because he's writing a history of Western philosophy. And looking at this, we're not going to specifically try to look at the ideologies themselves 100%, but we have to kind of look at the ideologies, because the ideologies don't matter, but they do. Remember, this is very dialectical. There are contradictions that will appear to contradicting statements will be simultaneously true. That's just how it is. Ideology doesn't matter, but it does. And what I mean by that is that as this lens that we're taking is the median lens that he's given us, a new ideology, right? We're looking at things through the ideology of an act. What is reified in the real world, what you bring about and manifest. Now, there are social acts. And then there's like the material act. And we'll get more into some of the materialism later. I want to talk about the evolution of these ideas and how they happen. Uh, reading through Plato lately. I, when I was a kid, I used to sit and read my Bible, read your Bible in a year type thing in my bed at night before I fell asleep. That's how I go to bed every night with a little bit of scripture being raised in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, my father was an assistant minister and the choir director at the local uh, Columbia Road Baptist Church is what it was called. And now I've decided that uh, I have this really nice copy of the complete works of Plato. I actually have it here with me. I did not. I am not going to reference that book today. I've been reading it at night as my replacement for the Bible lately. So I'm going to read all of Plato just a little bit at a time, like read your Bible in a year type thing and read everything that Plato read at least once, maybe twice. So I've been doing that. It it's an interesting journey. Um, there's there there when you get into these old philosophies, there's a lot of mumbo jumbo. People talk about uh, metaphysics, you know, those things that are just kind of made up in philosophy. That there's no real 
empirical evidence or scientific proof of. There's a lot of that, but there's a lot of, a lot of garbage and, and a lot of erroneous science. Human beings are very good at taking all these different ideas, combining them, and then throwing them at a wall, so to say, and trying to see what works. And if something continues to work, we continue to duplicate what we've done before. We say, oh, that's true. That's true. I mean, essentially, that's how we get science, right? This is how we begin to understand. Now, I'm going to say that this process of understanding is what we're doing here, but sometimes these ideas linger in. And they're, pro they're, they're, they're broken down. It doesn't matter what the ideology is if we have congruent agreement. Um, I, I've often said that uh, truth lies in consensus. Truth lies in consensus? Historically speaking, yes. When you look through these old books, what is considered to be true is largely a consensus. And at times in history, for the most part, we realize that they all agreed to something that was what we can understand to be just ignorant now, right? Like, we know way better than that. One of the good examples that people often use is the monad. Pythagoras talked about a monad, was this particle that made up everything and didn't exist. But then later we found something called atoms, which is eerily similar. So it almost comes back to it. But the monad and the atom aren't really, it was just kind of a guess, you know, an idea. There was lots of discussion about what things were made of. When I'm reading Socrates, I'm reading all the, or sorry, Plato, because Socrates is literally a character in Plato. Um, and we'll get to a lot of these, uh, Socrates, we're definitely coming back to Socrates and Plato through this, because there's a lot of material there I've found very useful. But what we start to see is this process of going back and forth, the Socratic method, you know, as I've said, very dialectical, back and forth, in a process of understanding, trying, testing, almost scientific. That's where scientists evolve the concept of science, essentially springs from this, right? Verifiable, a back and forth, peer-reviewed, truth lies in consensus. So we hash it out and we kind of come to a, a synthesis through the years. Now, reading Plato, he's just walking around looking. These people are just walking around looking at the dirt. They have no idea where anything comes from. They don't know what science, they haven't really created uh, the scientific method like we have at this point. They, they had no clue. Things are, are magic beings and beasts that create things. God is movement and, and, and everything else. The concept of gods keep on coming up. And it's interesting to look at that because there's this idea of ontology, which is the study of things, if they really exist. And we'll probably get an ontology at some point in time. Sorry to bring up another big word. I suggest listening to Stephen West philosophize this podcast if you really want to catch up on philosophy in general. I don't think it's important to explain ontology and the the uh, different ideas behind God and ontology through the history of thought. But I think there are something we must understand going into this, that everything around us was just constantly attributed to an idea, an abstract idea that was the abstract idea of something perfect. There was this idea that we were uh, kind of becoming more godlike through through our uh, advancement, right? Plato had some interesting ideas through that that I like to look at first. Dialectic, that is to say, the method of seeking knowledge by question and answer was not invented by Socrates, but the first time we see it in writing was through Zeno. And the, Zeno, uh, the, the, disi the disciple of Paramendes, in Plato's dialogue, Paramendes. Now, Plato's dialogue, Paramendes, is some discussion about it's kind of out there. There's not much there of value except for that method, right? That back and forth. 
but we see that there comes to be an agreement. Uh, truth is right and consensus, right? Like they come up with two different ideas. They agree. The consensus is there. They reify whatever it is. They put into social action or into uh, material world the agreed upon elements, right? Like the, the, the ideology behind it created isn't as important as it is when we actually manifest said thing, right? It could have been any ideology. We'll move forward. Uh, and looking at this, Bertrand Russell impresses upon us the importance to look at the influence of Sparta. There were serfs that existed in Sparta called helots. So we're looking at this very stratified system. Helots were very much, they had very little rights. They were free people who could vote. They were landowning people. Very, we are, we have it all, so we are better than you type thing. And Plato, he takes a different look here at politics and utopia, how to create the perfect world. Coming out of this world where, you know, some people like him... Some of these people, like Aristotle and stuff, were rather well-to-do. There is one way to start talking about royal life. Uh, Plato says that uh, hopes to deceive the rulers will be at any rate to deceive the rest of the city. The lie that is set forth in considerable detail. The most important part of it is the dogma that God created men of three kinds. So they're admitting there's a lie in this. Now, now what, what Plato's about to propose, it didn't really come to be in the exact way he said it. he was proposing, but it kind of did. Just listen. God has created men of three kinds, the best made of gold, the second best of silver, and the common herd of brass and iron. Those made of gold are fit to be guardians. Those made of silver should be soldiers. The others should do the manual work. Usually, but by no means always, children will belong to the same grade as their parents, when they do not do that. So you're getting to see what kind of social structures they're building here. They're trying to come up with a perfect world in which there's this strict hierarchy. And under that strict hierarchy, there is that, that labor that is subservient to a few people who get to live off. The gold people are better, right? It's thought hardly possible to make the present generation believe this myth of gold, silver. So there's not truth to it, but we have to make people believe it. And all the subsequent generations can be educated as not to doubt it. What was Plato? Plato was a teacher, wasn't he? What Plato does not seem to realize is the compulsory acceptance of such myths is incompatible with philosophy and involves a kind of education which stunts intelligence. Oh, philosophy, these, these greater ideas are kind of incompatible with because we're, we're questioning we're challenging we're trying to figure the world out come to a greater truth in philosophy right and it's, it's been very successful at doing so and it's also been very successful at perpetuating some of these lies now plato was a teacher he was aristotle's teacher specifically aristotle was was apparently alexander the great's teacher alexander the great interesting as, as i was told in my uh history class when i was a teenager Alexander the Great, they tell this story as my history teacher told me that all the different tribes were brought up in, in, in I can't remember what Alexander's father's name was, but he came around and he had all these sons from different tribes. And it was kind of a it was kind of a democratic process. Who will be the leader of the different sons? And they just tribes just stood up and cheered for their vote, right? Like it was just, yeah, we agree. Truth is consensus. He is the God-given ruler, you know, divine rights of kings. Truth and consensus. So Aristotle goes back to the gold thing, but he says something a little bit different. 
Aristotle thinks that justice involves not equality, but right proportion, which is only sometimes equality. The justice of a master or a father is a different thing from that of a citizen. For a son or slave is property, and there can be no injustice to one's own property. There can be no injustice to the, the bronze folk, right? It's only us people up here who need justice, who need equality. Those people are less than the bronze or iron. They're silver. They can, they can move up into middle management, right? He also believed that there is nothing in common between these different parties. The slave is a living tool for a slave. Then one cannot be friends with him. The slave is all the labor, the helot as well, right? Like these people were seen as just tools, cogs in a machine. It's important to remember that generation after generation for 2,000 years in the Western civilization has been taught off of Plato and Aristotle. Much of what we understand in Christianity has been influenced by these ideas, these old biases. And what is a bias? An ideology. One of these myths that we keep on throwing out of the wall, and as we see it reproduce itself, we continue to do it. It's human action that matters, right? The myth behind it is whatever. The myth of stratification, as it evolves, they refine it, as they try to continue to justify a system where... They get it all, and they get to sleep and do philosophy all day and postulate. Well, these people do the toil, but really, they realize here, they realize that to educate is to give them that power to liberate. He talks a lot about power and the wealth being desirable for the sake of honor and great soldness. And he really talks up being wealthy and having that power and how much better you are and how much... You should give so many certain folks respect or not. I think that the at the end of the day, the specifics aren't as important as the structured ideology there, right? Like, like, like those people aren't as good. Those people just are burger flippers, right? And he's the sort of man to confer benefits, but he is ashamed of receiving them. For the one is the mark of a superior, the other an inferior. Be dignified towards people who enjoy a high position, but assuming towards those in the middle class. I'm just kind of skipping through different segments here that I've highlighted, by the way. I'm not reading it straight through. Kind of to give you an idea of the ideology that here, these are uh, being quoted from Plato. I'm sorry, these are being quoted from Aristotle. He is one who will possess beautiful and profitless things rather than profitable and useful ones. He's the one that gets to do the art, the enjoyable, beautiful thing. Someone else has to do that necessary labor. Aristotle goes on to consider ethics a branch of politics. Interesting. This kind of this idea of don't get political, certain ideas that aren't politics, but we're all navigating the social structure, the domination factor, right? Isn't that part of this, the politics? Right? Who's in power? Who rules? How we structure society? Who does the work and who gets the benefits? We see that in here. The book begins to point out the importance of the state. Continuing with Aristotle. A family comes first and is built on the two fundamental relationships of man and woman, master and slave, both of which Aristotle sees as natural. 
A lot of it's built around the concept of property and maintaining that property and authority over certain properties. And then he goes on to say that without law, man is the worst of animals because without law, who could, you know, protect said authority, power, and claim to this position in, in life? And over the years, we've challenged that, and that's changed position. You know, the the head of that authority, the head, tends to change hands throughout history, from churches, kings, patriarchs, democracies. We'll get into all that eventually. We just understand that power continues to pass down. We're, 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 the ideology changes behind this uh, reproduction of what we've been doing, doesn't it? Just the ideology of all this. Sometimes the ideology doesn't change because some people are clinging to 500, 2,000-year-old ideologies. Right? A state being composed of households, each of which consists of one family, the discussion of politics should begin with the family. The bulk of the discussion is concerned with slavery, for in antiquity, the slaves were always reckoned as part of the family. Slavery is expedient and right, but the slaves should be naturally inferior to the master. From birth, some are marked out for subjugation, others for rule. The man who is by nature, not his own, but another man's, is by nature a slave. Slaves should not be Greeks, but of an inferior race with less spirit. Tame animals are better off when ruled by man, and so are those who naturally inferior when ruled by their superiors. It may be questioned whether the practice of making slaves out of prisoners of war is justified. Power, such as leads to victory in war, seems to imply superior virtue. But this is not always the case. War, however, is just when waged against men who, though intended by nature to be governed, will not submit. And it is this case, you hear that? War, I'm going to repeat that. War, however, is just when waged against men who, though intended by nature to be governed, will not submit. That's an ideology. That's an ideology that's passed down from generation to generation, from country to country. There are certain people that must submit to the will of those in power. This would seem enough to justify any conqueror who ever lived, for no nation will admit that it is intended by nature to be governed, and the only evidence as to nature's intentions must be derived from the outcome of war. He goes on to proselytize this. Um, we also begin to talk about the, the nature of religion in the evolution of capitalism. I think that's far ahead of us for what we're, for our purposes today. I'm going to rewind here and take a look at the warfare concept here and, and the submission thing, though, for a second. This nature of submission. Largely, it does, there's a lot of it that focuses around who does do the labor and who does actually benefit. That is, a, that is a part there. But these are ideas being passed down that are being reified. And there's, there's an emphasis here when you're reading Aristotle that they end when you're reading Plato that these only occur when you're educated, you're programmed to duplicate these things. There's an idea that only some are supposed to have that education, certain forms of education. Others, they do get education. They get trained to cook. They get trained to scrub my floors. You know, they get trained to kill for me so that those who questioned my authority are put into subjugation to me. That's what Aristotle believed, right? That's what we've been teaching in these universities. 
how many of these books like Plato and Aristotle and all these things that we expand upon and they try to salvage different parts of these great knowledges over the years come out from Harvard or Yale or Stanford Press where those who are wealthy and powerful and rule the world are educated. They're not being educated in the trade so much. There's certain elements of knowledge that are deemed suitable for those higher educated, right? Maintaining that stratification. When we talk about alienation, we might talk about autonomy and freedom as well. Um, and that should be coming up very soon. This is just a snippet. Hopefully, it's a little enlightening at some of the, the history of knowledge, and we'll talk more about the history of knowledge along the path of this as I go forward as well. I've got a lot to tackle. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, I'd, I'd really appreciate if you could maybe tell folks about this, if you think they could find benefit from this. This isn't being posted in a lot of places, and it's not being hosted on something like Spotify or one of these big corporate things for certain reasons. Um, but I'd like people to engage with these ideas if you find it useful. Send it to somebody, share with somebody. You go ahead and post it on social media, uh, whatever. If you have some insight or some something that you can teach me, I would love to hear from you. I have been ending this with no gods, no masters. I don't know if I should continue that or if I will. I don't think that I necessarily need a, a specific ending for this as a catchphrase. Um, I'm doing this a little different than the other podcasts. But I, I'd just like to to end cap with, with kind of thinking or postulating about some of these things, this whole process of, of knowledge being handed down. It's kind of a big thing to start to get your head wrapped around the history of philosophy, the history of knowledge. And looking at the institutions that are handed down from our, you know, like our homes, our schools, things like that. That's how we understand things. Some knowledge is handed down. There's a lot of knowledge out there to have and not to have. And certain people kind of deem who gets said knowledge and who doesn't. And the discussion of knowledge is, becomes a big thing when it talks about political life and things like democracy in Athens. And uh, we'll have to tackle some of these ideas, but you start thinking about how in order to be actively political, you have to know what the hell's going on. We definitely live in a society, but there's a lot of questions about that. I don't watch the news and question what truth is. There's a reason for that. I've kind of spent some time trying to understand what truth is because that should be a basic part of your education. Not everybody's taught that, though. Not everybody goes down and understands those things. Uh, truth, like I've said, is largely found in consensus. Thank you for listening. I hope you got something out of this.